You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Well, speaking personally, it's because my Nintendo Switch ran out of batteries. I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca. I'm Alexandra Rowland. I'm Rowena Miller. And this is Episode 11, Threads of Life. I'm extremely excited for this episode. I know Rowena is also extremely excited for this episode because I we feel are... like I feel like we've been waiting for this since we started this since podcast. Since we started our lives, Rowena, because <laughs> um, we are fiber geeks. Um, we are. What sort of like real quick before we get into this, like um, what sort of fiber arts do you do? I mostly sew, and my like really niche geek interest is hand sewing and like really um historically authentic hand sewing so kind of trying to recreate historical garments using like the the textiles that would have been used and the sewing methods that would have been used and all that stuff to kind of like recreate an entire outfit outfits ensembles a closet a whole closet of historical clothing so that's kind of my geekiness but I also like like, you know, vintage sewing and, and the occasional crafty project. I'm a terrible knitter, mm-hmm. but you're not. You're not a terrible knitter, well, are you? Well, as it turns out, I'm not a terrible knitter. Actually, I have not done a whole lot of knitting in my life because my sister was the big knitter in the family. Uh, and so I have done a few more crochet projects than knitting, but I just got a new craft-oriented job and I am having to brush up on my knitting skills. So I am, as we speak right now, uh, working on a knitting project during this episode. Um, and so I do some knitting, I do some crocheting, I do some spinning. I have both a drop spindle and a spinning wheel. I do some weaving. I do own a loom. I do some leather work. Uh, I own a set of leather carving tools. Uh, I do a whole lot of, of sewing, of course, both hand sewing and machine sewing. Um, what else? What else? What else? I haven't tried felting yet, but I would like to try. Oh, and I do something that I will probably be talking about a little bit later in the episode called uh, null bending, which is the uh, more ancient form of knitting. But we'll uh, get into that a little bit later because I have some points to make about it. What sort and of I, what sort of I, uh, I, Marshall Ryan Maresca? Do, do you do you have, do you have any? any? Fiber I arts that you gonna enjoy? Gonna be deeply out of my wheelhouse in this episode, <laughs> but that's good because I'm here to learn. You know, it's 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 okay because if if you can't be a fiber artist, be a fiber yes, art supporter. I'm, yeah, I'm here to learn. Yeah, I'm here to listen. Sure. I'm here to ask questions. I'm here to be the neophyte for you to 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 educate. That is my role here today. Yeah, that's a really important <laughs> thing, though. Like, I think you'll do a great job being asking asking the. The dumb newbie Asking questions. Asking the dumb newbie questions because because <laughs> we're going to have a lot of listeners here today that are going to be like they want to know more about cloth and clothing and textiles for their world building and they're like where the heck do I start? So let me ask, where the heck do we start? Well, where I... do we start? Depends on how much of a, a masochist you want to be because you can go back to. Well, biomes, you have to figure out like yes. where you're getting your raw fiber <laughs> from. Um, and that's going to affect the sort of textiles that you can make. That's going to affect the sort of um, 
fashions that you can have and therefore the uh, modesty that levels that we can have in cultures because uh, everything affects everything else, right? Well, I mean, that is kind of like what I always talk about when I'm saying like being full on masochists of working out the biome and then yeah. from there working out what plants and animals are even available for domestication to then become the sort of thing the sort of resources that you can use also your your social type is going to affect it as well because if you are for example nomads then that is going to affect what sort of clothing you can make because you don't have the ability to haul around a full-sized floor loom when you are wandering from place to place. You're going to have to find another way to make your fibers something that's going to be more uh, transportable and uh, probably with fewer and smaller tools. So I feel like we have all kinds of things that we can talk about when we talk about where do we start with textiles. Yeah. But one of the things that I kind of like to hit up is like, why have them anyway? That's a good question. What, what purpose are textiles serving in your world? Because... We, we did just have a, a presume moment where we presumed that people would have textiles and like, you're, you're so right. Like maybe these people don't wear clothing or use textiles. Right. That's well, because an option. We start with, with, I think clothing is the most obvious textile use, even though there are others that we can kind of hit on. Yeah. But, you know, it seems really, yeah, duh. But if you don't need clothing for warmth or for protection from the elements... Why are you wearing clothing anyway? And what's really remarkable is that across the world, most people wear something, even if they don't, strictly speaking, need it. So you could live in a warm climate that you're not exposed to a whole lot of sun, mm -hmm. because obviously sun is something else that you do need protection from. Um, and plenty of places that have hot climates, but lots of sun are still using a lot of um, full coverage clothing. Yeah. Or there's hot places that have a lot of shade, for example, uh, any heavily forested area like a rainforest. Um, right. That is your sun protection. Right. But it's remarkable that even most of those cultures still wear something. Like at least a loincloth. Yeah, yeah. Even... Perhaps. Or, or perhaps just ornamentation. Yep. Perhaps jewelry. you have right. jewelry, feathers, some kind of, um, you know, collar or waistband that you wear, even if it's not for what we might consider modesty, quote unquote, um, some kind of, of ornamentation, which I think is really interesting, yeah. right? Like, there's there's no necessity for that necessarily, but we create cultural necessity out of having to ornament ourselves. Right, because we just like feeling pretty. I, I don't really like the idea of human universals because I think that is really, really dangerous territory, but I feel pretty safe in saying that the desire to express ourselves and to, to feel good about ourselves is a human universal. And one of the really um, prominent ways of doing that is through our presentation. And that includes clothing, that includes jewelry and ornamentation of other kinds, makeup, um, tattooing, scarification, all sorts of things. Right. I mean, I think it's even interesting. We, we come up, we, we invent things for the sole purpose that they're pretty. Yeah. Like I was in, in coming up with sort of examples for this episode, I was thinking about silk ribbon. Silk ribbon is ubiquitous from quite a long time ago um, as a trade good, just, you know, throughout Europe and elsewhere. And there's really no purpose for mm -hmm. it. Like we do stuff with it. We tie things with it. We tie it around things. But other things like cord or linen tape or wool tape would work better. Yeah. 
but we want that shiny, brightly colored silk ribbon, not the boring linen cord. Not just twine. Not just twine. Twine is ugly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we want we want the pretty. <laughs> Sometimes we exactly. just want the like pretty. Like form pretty. and function. Exactly. Though that remind I remember reading this a long time ago, and I don't remember where I read it all, but apparently. And I can't remember if it was ancient Rome or ancient Greece, but there was one like ultra famous prostitute from ancient Rome or ancient Greece. And in whatever, whichever one she was in, there was a law about you can't just be completely naked in public. And she was like, screw that, because, you know, I want to walk around completely naked because I'm awesome. And they're like, well, the, the law is you can't be completely naked. So she just tied a silk ribbon around her waist and was like, ta da! No, <laughs> Close! <laughs> So even there, it had a function. But also we use clothing so much as, you know, as a means of self-presentation, but in terms of also mm-hmm. how we create identities for ourselves and and recognizable identities for the peoples in our culture. Like uniforms are very much a, a, a item of, so you can visually represent this person is part yeah. of this group and this person is part of this group. And we use that a yes. lot in, in world building. What what those what those clothings are made of and what they signify can be a huge part like, of Like, how do you know do. that someone is a Catholic priest? Because they're wearing the collar. Uh, or, like, how do you know yes. that someone is the Pope? Because he's dressed that way. How do you know that someone is a policeman? Because he's dressed that way. Um, <laughs> like, it's so much a signifier and kind of a billboard saying here is what i am here is what i do here is my function in the society right and i think that one too that um can get really interesting historically is presentation in terms of gender oh yeah um that how we associate how you are dressed with your gender presentation um you know, I think Alex, you and I have talked about quite a bit that men's clothing from, say, the early Victorian era onward gets a, a certain look that really just mm-hmm. stays. And we associate that with masculine. Yeah. But prior to that, bright colors, brocades, embroidery, layers, high heels, all kinds froth, of just over the top froof and froth and lace is, and, and, you know, that was masculine. So forth. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> So, you know, I think that that's something to kind of a good place to interrogate. And I think also thinking about gender binary, um, this is something I'm getting a little out of my depth, but I I do know that many of the Plains Indians tribes um, had more than one gender. There was a third gender and they dressed differently. You know, they had kind of like traditionally feminine clothes, traditionally masculine clothes, and then this kind of third gender, which did have clothing that was kind of specific Mm -hmm. to that. So I think that you know, signaling gender is a kind of interesting thing when you get into clothing and a fun place to interrogate what you're doing. Why are your women wearing dresses? Yeah. Why aren't your men wearing dresses? Why aren't your men wearing Some, dresses? Why aren't because the men skirts, wearing corsets? Why aren't are... they... <laughs> and in yeah. a lot of times and places they did. Like in uh, Tudor England, men's corsets was totally a thing. Especially for the upper classes, because everyone had gout and was like eating vast amounts <laughs> of red wine and, and meat. And so they sort of had um, spanks, basically, to keep their, their beer guts in. I do find it fascinating how often you see in secondary world fantasy people making clothing choices that are historical rather than necessarily doing their own freeform choices yeah. about what clothing can and should right. be for their culture. And you know, and I th- and I think that some of that 
you know, is sensible in, in terms of when we kind of do the domino effect from the biomes on down, right? That if you have, say, a biome that's very similar to, say, England, and it's cold and wet a lot of the year, and so you end up with people wearing wool three-piece suits, it's like, well, that does kind of right. make sense because it's right. warm. But it's also like, you know, like you're saying, Marshall, it, it's a time to kind of say, like, are you choosing to do this because it makes sense for your world? Or are you choosing to do this because this is how it is done? Or are you choosing to do it for aesthetics? Because I think that there is totally um, arguments we made for you want to evoke something. You talk about clothing that makes people think about, you know, I want this to feel like Victorian England. So I'm going to talk about bustles and and, and, hats and corsets and parasols because I want that evocation. Clothing is definitely evocative in terms of aesthetic. Oh, for sure. For sure. Well, also, if if you do a thing where you make some bold choices with your clothing choices for your cultures and then are building that from the ground up you're you're setting yourself up for a lot more work in your descriptive writing yes just mm-hmm. to get just to onboard your readers to, to what's going on with the clothing yeah 99 percent of the time like unless the book is specifically about clothing for example rowena's book uh you should read it it's great rowena's it's book. called torn uh <laughs> in her book um like you probably don't have to go into super super detail with with the clothing just because like it's not going to matter that much there's only so many ways to make a pair of pants right and at the end of the day a pair of pants is a pair of pants like we can recognize that the japanese hakama are essentially the same garment as like french 17th century knee breeches right it's a covering for your legs everybody calm your shit down So, like, and, like, this is something that sort of frustrates me sometimes uh, when I'm trying to, like, pattern a new garment. I'm thinking of, like, okay, I want to make something that's cool and different. And then I'm like, wait, but it's just pants. Like, all of the clothing has been invented. Like, it's just variants of, like, these are the body parts that I have. These are the the body parts (laughs) that we need to cover. We all have, like, arms and legs. Well, most of us have arms and legs. So how do you invent new clothing? You'd have to invent, like aliens who have a completely different bodily (laughs) configuration in order to invent entirely new garments so yeah just call your pants pants or trousers (laughs) if you're british so here's a question i feel like a lot of times when we talk clothing we end up talking modesty and i kind of like touched on it earlier but i feel like that question of modesty um like that's another good place to probe Mm. right oh very much so because how does a culture define modesty one thing that i always find hilarious is so like 18th century corsets tend to put the bosom on a bit of a display and and frequently it's covered like with a a ruffle or um a neckcloth um but it's not like having that out there is immodest that wasn't considered immodest during the time period it it wasn't anything those are just you know yeah that's or boots like okay women they're there. were breastfeeding in public all um, the time and nobody in church right. and nobody gave a shit in church and no one cared but it's interesting because for a modern eye it's kind of like oh you're you're portraying a tavern hussy because your boobs are out there like no no that's not at all what's yeah. going on with this for their cultural mores and you can also play with cultural mores from culture to culture within your world mm-hmm. um i i <laughs> have a bit in my book <laughs> In with yeah, sorry, I have to do you it. You did it. Um, in, <laughs> you did it. I'm proud of you. <laughs> Keep going. In in way of the shield, there's a bit where my main character comes across a woman who's wearing a very different style of dress, 
and immediately recognizes that she's from a different part of the country mm -hmm. because that dress is pretty normal in that part of the country, but the part where they're in, it's considered very racy and immodest. But then he's like, oh, she's from there. So that's, he's able to immediately pick up on that based on the different modesty rules from the different yeah different uh archduchies within the country but also just even like you can go even smaller than that even within one city or one culture or one region um there's going to be variation because uh based between on classes based on too. social class yep exactly uh based on religious variants like the Catholics and the Protestants have different ideas of what is considered moral and therefore different ideas of what is considered modest. And those are two groups which are, listen, they're functionally the same, right? Like if you put those next to each other in a fantasy novel, people would go like, okay, these are like, one is a slightly different shade of blue. Fine. Um, uh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> you get what I'm saying though, right? Like like social class yes. and and um like you mentioned the the gender variance and so forth. But yeah, like the lower classes are generally going to have a much looser idea or at least a much more flexible idea of what is considered modest because they are basing their lives more around what's practical. Like these are people who are going to need to move and work and they are going to take care of their own children and they have much less time for faffing about and going like oh it's terribly immodest to blah 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 um i'm thinking not to to call anyone out by name except i'm actually going to do this um in brandon sanderson's um but in in the way of kings uh one of the modesty things that he ha has in his culture is that for women, their left hand is considered immodest. And so in the lower classes, um, women wear like a glove on their left hand. And in the higher classes, women just have a really long sleeve that like covers their, because they're not going to need to use their hand as much. But a leather glove still is going to get in your way. Yeah, that's going to get gross. Like the person you have to milk yeah. a cow. Yeah. <laughs> or knead like, bread. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> or change a baby. Oh, yep, God. <laughs> yep, there are so many contexts in which you just need both of your hands bare. To, or like kneading bread <laughs> or cooking anything. That's like, disgusting. You need, yeah. you need full dexterity of both hands to, to do your job. So like he mentions that lower classes wear the, the glove, but I don't quite buy it. Like... You use your hands for so many things. Like knitting. I'm knitting right now, and I could not do that with a leather glove on one hand. I can't do it with a fingerless glove on one hand. Has has Brandon ever needed bread? I don't I know. I, maybe not. <laughs> I think it's interesting, too, that when we talk about classes and modesty, that often the lower classes would do something out of pragmatism, like, for example, um, shorter skirt uh -huh. lengths. And then it gets to be a fad with the yes. upper classes. So, like, the late 18th century, you have skirt lengths getting higher and and because it's this faddish thing that they're kind of having the sporting style of having a short skirt and then also rucking up the skirts to have this fun like draping mm -hmm. and everything but it probably just came from working class women hiking up their skirts to work in the fields or right whatever. or making shorter skirts because they couldn't quite afford enough fabric to yeah right the hem wore out, so we'll cut off this and part of the hem, bind it yeah. up again, and yeah. rehem like, it. It all comes back to economics all the time, always. Yep. But that's another fun thing to play with is how fashions in your world 
can change just from year to year Mm -hmm. and have that have that level of verisimilitude in what people are wearing and and how that plays out in your world i like i do like to play with things like suits being out of fashion or old style suits and having a different kind of clasp or something like that just as a way to show say class or poverty or something like that or awareness I had in my book, um, most recently, I have the main character noticing that the uh, antagonist in the book is wearing clothes in a way that's not quite right. Like he's a he's a foreigner and like the main character makes conclusions about who this person is as a person based on his clothing and his presentation. It's like, well, either he is too cheap to hire a valet who would guide him in the right direction or he is being given advice by his valet and he's not listening to it. Um, so either he's a miser or he is just like bad at listening and taking advice. One thing I was going to kind of hit really quickly too is is in the concept of fashion and class that I think we often assume that the lower class would not be keeping up mm-hmm. with fashion. But I think it's a really fun way to play with how people do and how ingenious people can yep. be with, again you want to look good, you want to keep up with, with how people um, are dressing and just how much remaking of clothing there is. And um, I know in a lot of places there is a very active secondhand yep, clothing yep, trade yep, yep. that, you know, rich people would, and actually what often happens, um, rich people would cast off their clothing to their servants. Their servants couldn't use it or couldn't wear it, so they sold it for something that they could actually mm-hmm. use. Um, so you, you have like high fashion stuff trickling down and being reimagined and being remade even by, you know, fairly lower class people. You have out of fashion things disappearing among the lower class and getting replaced, you know, a decade late maybe, but it's not like people are holding on to styles that are totally, totally out there. And like my grandma would wear this, like, no, like you cut off that old sleeve that looks like something grandma wore and you remake it. Yeah. You, you unpick all the seams and you use that fabric to make something else. Even if it's just like a fancy brocade handbag, because like this, uh, vest was so badly stained that there was only a little bit that could be used, but you still use that little bit. You don't throw out the whole thing because like fabric production is so expensive. So you're going to use that thing until it is worn out. Right. Exactly. Which is, it's really interesting because we have a lot of historical textiles and museums that you can tell have been Mm -hmm. remade or the particular silk brocade that's being used was produced in 1740, but this gown was clearly made after 1780 styles. So someone at some point took apart, you know, mom's gown and remade it in a later style. Um, which, you know, like as a clothing historian gets really frustrating because you're like, well, is this originally how this was made or was it modified? It gets really obnoxious because people would take this stuff and cut it up in the Victorian era yeah. as like dress up clothes, basically. <laughs> so you get such a like, well, is this, wait, hold on. Is this a costume or was <laughs> um, this something that people this a were costume? wearing? I can't tell, but it just speaks to how people reuse clothing yeah. items and that, you know, even something that's out of fashion is not out of luck. You're going to keep yes. using it. Yes, for sure. So we've we've beaten on clothing a bit, and I can imagine us coming back to it. But I also wanted to um, bring us back to that textiles are more than just clothing, and that cultures use textiles for all kinds of different stuff. And once I kind of started like going down this rabbit trail, I was like, oh man, you know, you have home goods, you have blankets, you have towels, you have wash rags. 
how many things that we use every day and that our characters just kind of count on having in their homes are a textile that someone had to produce and that they had to get a hold of in some way. Yeah, yeah. Like anything made uh, like burlap sacks to carry your turnips, that's a textile that someone had to make and put their right. hands on. <laughs> um, or like the rope that you use to tie your horse to a outside a tavern like that's a textile that someone had to make with their hands or oh we're going uh camping in the arctic like what are our tents made of probably a textile (laughs) right (laughs) you know one thing i was thinking of too is a lot of like innovations that a lot of a lot of just major developments rely on rely Uh on textiles i was thinking about sales oh you're like the age of sale comes about and you're like well you have to have like hemp canvas to make the sails yeah. right. to sail across giant oceans and open huge trade routes. Like that's Did the textile. Did you know that the reason that we have computers today is because of textiles? I'm sure that that is true, even if I so don't know why. So it is because <laughs> of the jacquard loom. So uh, because of yes, the punch cards. Yes, yes, yes jacquard, um, yes. Mm-hmm. So anyone who does like Rowena is now on the same page, just for me saying jacquard looms. Yep. Uh, yep. Yep. <laughs> but... First of all, loom technology started getting a lot faster, and so people needed to uh, up their spinning game uh, to keep up with it. So we introduced spinning wheels from China, and then we had spinning wheels and looms. Before spinning wheels, we were using drop spindles. Once we had the looms, people started wanting more fancy uh, designed clothing and back in like uh, textured fabric and back in the day you had to do that entirely by hand you would have like either you would pick every thread up by hand and go in and out one by one which takes a long ass time or you would have a tiny child sort of perched on the top of your loom and they would individually (laughs) lift each of the the harnesses of the loom to lift the right number of threads but children get tired really fast and, when they make and, and interjecting the horrible things that happen to many of these children are the reason we have yes, child labor yes. laws. Uh, but that happened a little bit later in the industrial era. Uh, so yes, this guy yes. uh, whose name was Jacquard, I forget what his first name was, invented this way of using punch cards so that the loom would be able to read which threads it was supposed to lift. And it did this entirely mechanically. Like you would press down on a lever on the floor and it would lift the right number of, of threads. You would pass the shuttle through the threads. Uh, then you would uh, press down on the, the lever again. It would lift some different threads. Uh, and it is because of those punch cards that we later used uh, for the U.S. Census in the 1800s uh, to make when we had a huge influx of immigrants coming in uh, and we had no way of keeping up with it to get the census finished. Uh, and then it was because of those punch cards that were used in the census that we had punch cards for computers. And that is why today we are able to have this podcast because of looms. Thank you. <laughs> Thank yes. you for coming to my TED Talk. Thank you, looms. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I feel like this is a really good time to segue into talking about technology and textiles and what you are working with in terms of if you're if you're building a world, um, what kind of textiles you have are going to be influenced by and are going to influence the kind of technological level that you're at. Um, So like in some ways backing way up to what uh, Marshall said at the beginning of the episode about biomes, do you start with biomes? I think in a lot of ways, yeah, you, you do start with biomes, right? Because you have fibers basically come from two places, plants or animals. And we can get into in the modern area, we have synthetics as well. But, you know, unless you're you're 
playing with um, a later, much later era of, of modernization than a lot of fantasy writers do, you're stuck with plants and animals. So like what plants and animals that produce fibers does your biome support? And like, there's a reason that England um, developed a wool industry because sheep really like the British Isles and they get, you know, they're very good um, at, at raising them there. And so you have this wool industry that like, just explodes in England. Sorry, I just got distracted by my knitting because I think I made a mistake. So I'm going to actually set it aside <laughs> oh, and pay no. attention to the podcast now. No. And I will figure out what went wrong <laughs> in a little bit when we're done with See, this. This. This, is why I, this is why I wasn't sewing because I'm, I'm attaching leather binding to a pair of stays right now and I was like, I'm going to stab myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't, I was, I can't I, talk. I thought I would... And so at the same time, it's I not happening. I thought I would do fine with it because it was just like a sort of a mindless like pearl across the whole row. Uh, and then it went wrong somehow. So I'm going to have to figure out why in a bit here. Uh, sorry. What was the question? This is why textiles are so hard (laughs) because they require so much attention. Well, a lot of them are are mindless right up until they're not. And I have these big feelings as well about like why, like female socialized culture, quote unquote, as we know it today and as we have known it in the past and made stereotypes about it in the past is so much based on the fact that women were the ones primarily doing fiber arts and most fiber arts are fairly mindless. So like if you have to do this thing and it does have to get done, you gather together with a bunch of your friends and you all sit in a circle doing this mindless task together and talking to keep yourselves entertained. And like, I think that's the reason that we have the stereotype of women being like sociable and chatty is because like we were (laughs) raised by our mothers to do this and they were raised by their mothers to do this and thousands and thousands of generations of mothers. And eventually somewhere back there, there was a mother who was sitting in a group of her friends, like developing these social skills because like, she was bored to shit sitting in a room trying to do this fiber art all by herself. <laughs> well, and as, as long as we're on, on this sidetrack, one of my favorite pieces from the Victorian era is Florence Nightingale wrote a lot about mm. women's culture and domesticity and women's rights even. Yeah, like, like the nurse. Yeah. The famous for being a nurse. She was also like a social activist. But one of the things she talks about is that women's work is put downable. Yes, Women are given work that you can put down because they're expected to be able to respond to their family's Mm -hmm. needs immediately. So, and not just like, I mean, children's needs kind of make sense. Your toddler is about to climb the curtains. You have to stop them. But that she was extending this to if someone has an emotional need. So like men go out and make money and then they come back and have emotional needs. You have to be able to drop everything and deal with those needs. And so not just the socialization and kind of like we're chatty, but also yes. this nurturing ideas because we have work that we can put down yep. at a moment. Just like notice. I did with my knitting just now. Cause <laughs> just like you're yeah. knitting. Anyway, what were you talking about with the technology? I was like, I was like about to talk about like the cotton gin. Oh or yeah. Something, and you mentioned, but, you, you mentioned know. the English wool industry. Um, and it's, really interesting because textiles also play into like the law and obviously economics and stuff um i asked the 
uh, one of the co-hosts of my other podcast, Be the Serpent. Uh, she is kind of an expert on the wool industry of like the 1700s and 1800s because she was writing a book about it. And so I was like, give me a super quick refresher on everything you learned about the wool industry. Um, and she was she was telling me about how uh, England had like hella sheep and therefore hella wool. Um, but their textile market was like not very successful. They weren't as good at making the like manufacturing the textiles. Uh, so England passed a law that you were only like if you lived in England, you were only allowed to buy English made wool products. Like like if you were buying wool, you couldn't buy French wool. You couldn't buy French fabric. You had to buy English right. wool and English fabric because right. they wanted to bolster their home economy so there was this whole black market which was uh there was a crime called owling like the the bird owling um which is smuggling english sheep or wool to another country usually france so that it can be manufactured there and then shipped back um and there was also some evidence that this was also the same time as the laws passed around um that lawyers and judges were required to have woolen court robes but she thinks that that might have tied into it as well. Like, that's another way to bolster the wool industry is to require people to use it. Anyway, yeah, fun, right. fun facts right. about that. No, but and it's it's absolutely like spot on, too. And um, I believe that those those laws um, were kind of the grandfathers of the mercantile system in the American mm-hmm. colonies that you had to import your fabrics typically from yes. England. You you didn't get to just buy whatever. There's no free market. Right. Yeah. Tell us about the cotton gin and like cotton production. So, right. You have two major plant based fibers. You have cotton and you have linen. And um, it's kind of funny that now we have the whole like cotton the fabric of our lives kind of like idea like cotton is your cheap stuff and linen is kind of more of a luxury fabric um but historically linen was actually easier to produce um because when you grow cotton it it's in these like puffs and it's full of yeah. seeds because that is how the seeds are are spread in like the wild ancestor of cotton is it's like a cottonwood tree. Like they float yeah. around, you know, um, not that cottonwood trees are an ancestor of cotton, but you have the image, you get the idea. Um, so you had to pick all those seeds out. And so linen was um, more widely used for a very long time. And linen was like your cheap fabric. That's what you make your underwear out of. So when you look at, historical documents that talk about linens they're talking about not just like bed linens like we say linens but like your undergarments your shirt your shift your chemise whatever you're wearing under everything else um and it wasn't until the late 18th century when someone created and i'm forgetting his name of course um eli whitney jenny yep Whitney, thank you. I was like, Jenny, that's wrong. Whitney. Um, (laughs) Jenny was his wife, though. So yes, (laughs) which is yeah, Um, create a machine that would that would pick out the seeds for you so that that would be um, one less manual task in the process. Because of course, if you're thinking about making linen or cotton, you're growing it, which is a labor intensive process in and of itself. You're then processing um, the fibers, and then spinning it, or, um, you know, then weaving it like it's there's there's a lot to do so cotton gin took one step out of that what's really interesting is that even as cotton got cheaper and eventually got cheaper than linen linen remains your undergarment standard and there are like victorian era like pamphlets and treatises that talk about cotton is unhealthy to wear close to your skin that's it's bad for you what's hygienic is to wear linen which i mean i kind of 
agree with because linen breathes a heck of a lot better no, than does. cotton does. It does. So it's kind of it's kind of interesting how it took a long time for the economic impetus of a cheap fabric to overtake um, both kind of the comfort level and just the tradition of this is what we do. Yeah. I also feel like um, we have to point out that the price of cotton started going down before the cotton gin was invented, and it was directly because of slavery. When mm-hmm. you have quote unquote free labor. Um, to do this hard production um, and this this tedious processing of the cotton, like that's driving down your price. And then the cotton gin is kind of a, a knock on effect, right? It's making that industry, which is already there and already profit- profitable, even more efficient. Yeah. So like, let's totally acknowledge that slavery was a huge part of what yes. drove down the price of cotton in the 17, 1800s. Yes. And and also if we're going to talk about, especially in America, I think we have to kind of acknowledge that, um, yes, the South was um, making a lot of money off of the, the raising of cotton, which by the way is also a total bitch on the yeah. soil. So <laughs> we trashed a lot of farmland that way. But the North was also making a ton of money off of this because while the South is raising this cotton, the North was, um, was yeah. manufacturing it and industrializing it. And that was a major, in fact, that was some of the first mills and factories that we built were were um textile mills that actually the the plans were kind of smuggled in from england we weren't supposed to have that information and someone went over and like copied all of this and brought it back so that we would have um kind of mill technology i recently learned that one of the first uh public health like hygiene laws was in direct response to weavers in, or at least the one of the first public hygiene laws in America was in direct response to um, a disease that was going around the weavers in Massachusetts because of the uh, shuttle technology that they had on their looms required them to like put their mouths to the shuttles to suck the thread through it uh, so that they could like threading a needle except like much more bad. <laughs> so they were inhaling a lot of like fiber dust and and uh microparticles and getting really sick and also like putting their mouths to things that they were sharing between each other all the time it was a bad situation (laughs) don't do that you know one other part of the process that i find really interesting is dye yes um because linen does not take dye very well at all modern dyes you can get bright colors on linen but historically you really couldn't you could get colors on linen um and blue indigo in particular um which again if we want to talk about the american south that was a um production that a woman actually figured out how to to grow indigo Mm. as a cultivar and um develop that as a a part of american southern industry but anyway other than that you don't get much color on linen which is why cotton is kind of awesome because it will take color a lot better and so the printed textiles that get really huge Mm. in the 18th century the chintz that's coming out of india and then getting copied in, um, in France and England, um, it's because cotton would take it. And so you have this kind of show-off ability of the fabric. And then wool and silk both take bright dyes as well, too. So if you, like, you have an image, I think, sometimes from like historical films of everyone's wearing brown and gray. And like that, that's, that's a, a costuming choice. That's not a historical yeah. choice because you could get bright colors out of wool and silk. Um, and it's actually, it's kind of funny. I think in the golden age of Hollywood, that was something that they would do to highlight the main characters was to put them in bright colors and to put your background characters in drab colors. So all your extras are wearing drab colors. And so people have this entrenched idea of historically people wore yeah. drab colors 
but that's a Hollywoodization so that they could show um, up on that was a storytelling so they could choice show up more easily on more film. than anything so you would know like when yeah. you have black and white like you your eye needs to know where to go and so like the one who stands out is the one who you're gonna be you're gonna know like oh that's the protagonist it's also sort right. of like that thing in anime where like the anime protagonist has like pink hair and everyone else is like a normal looking person <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but it's kind of fun because you can get a lot of colors out of wool and out of silk. Not until the mid nineteenth century that you get the first synthetic dyes, like chemical dyes, yeah. not natural dyes. Um, and they they are fads. Like you have mauve, which mm-hmm. is a purple, and then um, the the Arsenic horribly green. poisonous green. Arsenic green, <laughs> the horribly poisonous green. Um, and those were fads, but that wasn't because they couldn't get bright colors before. They just couldn't get those bright colors before also i just on the topic of of processing fiber like it's kind of fun to think about sometimes how much labor goes into producing anything like we talk a bit about like how tedious it is to produce cotton but also like none of them are are easy or or fast like with wool you're gonna be uh combing out all the tangles of the wool you're gonna be picking out little bits of poop from and like grass and mud and everything from the wool um that is coming off a sheep which has been wandering around in a field in the rain and the mud for some for most of the year right like that thing is (laughs) filthy and smelly um with linen you have to cut the or rather pull the the stalks of the plant out of the the ground and then you crush well first of all you lay them in a field to rot for a little while and then you like crush the outer shell and then you like comb out all the shards and splinters from the fiber and then you have to spin it and yeah it's it's intensive an intensive intensive process yeah and, and we aren't even getting into the part where you have to actually raise, raise raising sheep. the sheep <laughs> have you have you ever been around no. sheep? Sheep sheep are, they are not always fun. They are really they've, stubborn, obnoxious well, animals. I think even more than that is that Very stupid. Yes, there it is. Very why shepherding is a job. What'd you say, Marshall? <laughs> Very stupid animals. I said that's why shepherding is yeah. a job, because it's hard yes. work. Because yes. sheep are dumb and they have no, like self-preservation instinct whatsoever other than, like, run from everything. All of what we're saying also goes to the sort of amazingness of human ingenuity over the course of history and the deep-seated desire for textiles and fabrics that we went through that much Mm. trouble to figure out how can we take this thing and make it into fabric you really wonder the first person was who thought of that (laughs) (laughs) it's like you know what we could do let's leave this to lay out and dry and then hammer it down and then see if we can (laughs) weave it together like who thought of that I would actually argue that of the fibers that I have personally interacted with, I think that silk might actually be one of the least labor intensive ones because like the lifespan yeah. of a silkworm is like, what, two, three months? I have raised silkworms. Uh, I have gone through the process. Yeah. So like you have to feed the mulberry leaves a couple times a day, but like that's not that labor intensive. Um, and then like processing the fiber is tricky and it requires the right weather conditions because if it's too humid, then you have a hell of a mess. And I'm not going to take up too much of our gum, yeah, the yeah. gum Saracen. Look it up. <laughs> um, Google it, guys. Just fucking Google it. You don't have to do much cleaning. And like once you have the fiber, you got the fiber and you can just like start making stuff with it. So like you don't have to go through these this like 20 step process to 
to get the the finished fiber, you only have to go through like a six step process. But also, if you want to do more creative world building, really dig into the research of different other mm-hmm. different things you can use. Um, um, in Mexico and the American Southwest, agave was the source of a lot of their fiber and clothing that they made textiles out of. I didn't know that agave was a textile plant. Agave they use for freaking <laughs> everything. Amazing. I mean, it. it's... I, I recently watched a documentary that is just basically about agave and all the six bazillion things they use for it, including using it to make textiles. And, and yeah, it was... It was the most useful plant that that fulfilled so many purposes within those cool. cultures. And so dig dig in and, and find you know, if you want to do something a little weirder than than wool or cotton or linen or silk, there there are options yeah. out there. Or even even, you know, go full masochist and come up with stuff. Right. <laughs> There's no reason that you cannot come up with some plant fiber that has been previously unexplored yes. in yes. fantasy writing. Domesticatable spiders meant that make spider silk or something like no, that. No, absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> <laughs> or like woolly mammoths and like you comb them to get the, the super yes. soft like undercoat that they have. Yeah. Uh, all sorts of things. <laughs> Just hold still. Come back here. Yeah. I want to comb I mean, you. they would be domesticated <laughs> or at least semi-domesticated like elephants. I don't know. You know, and one thing too, that as we're talking about the labor intensiveness of this, I think that one thing... Um, to kind of be aware of, especially when writing, is um, especially in America, I think we have this, I kind of call it the myth of homespun, that your average person is is handling the fiber from start to finish. That one person is raising the sheep, sharing the sheep, producing the wool, spinning the wool, weaving. And for the vast majority of, of people, once you have any kind of even once you have spinning wheels taking off, you're not individually handling every part of the process. People are yep, specializing. Yep. And then once you hit industrialization, a lot of that is getting shunted off. And in fact, our kind of American mythos of homespun comes from a rejection of that, that during the American Revolution and prior to the American Revolution, women made a show of rejecting imported textiles. And they would have these spinning bees that they would all get together and spin and produce home textiles. I have not come across anything that has any sort of data on how successful they were at actually replacing Mm -hmm. imported textiles with their homespun because, you know, that was not how their economy had worked up until then. So it's, it's something I think to kind of be aware of that, you know, there's a huge, you know, not just the industry of, of, textile mills pumping stuff out but even prior to that you have specialization you have people whose specialty is spinning or whose specialty is weaving or whose specialty is sewing and even the lower class for the most part were engaging with that um they weren't doing it all themselves on the opposite end from the lower classes you have like the upper classes were also engaging in textile production because it was like a requirement for a young lady's education to know how to do fine embroidery. Nobody was completely free of this process. Like even if you were a super wealthy duke, like probably your sister or female cousin was sewing handkerchiefs for you and like personally embroidering them for you. So like you were... You were personally engaged with some point of this process. Like you knew someone who was um, a fiber artist in some way. One of the things I do like to think about a lot is, so there was what's referred to as the market revolution mm-hmm. that was in 
the late 18th, early 19th century, where we were getting those first inventions like the cotton gin and times of mass production and things like that. And that level of industrialization is, can be a really fun thing to play with in, again, if you're, especially if you're doing something like more like flintlock fantasy, then, you know, take it to that level where you then can have more industrialized and regular use of fabrics that are consistent or yes because you have that technology at that level which is not quite the industrial revolution level well one thing too that is i think a a wide open territory to really have fun playing with in a fantasy world is trade routes oh yes because when it comes to textiles you know you have so many textiles that are you know for example if we want to talk about cotton you might have cotton that is being grown um, on the Seaward Islands, and then it's being shipped to England for production, and then there's another um, workshop that is doing the actual printing of the cotton, and then it's being shipped back to you know wherever. I mean, you can have vast trade routes and interconnecting nations and politics and all kinds of wacky stuff getting involved over just getting a bolt of fabric from point A to yeah. point B. Um, so that's that's kind of a fun and like. In, in my <laughs> book, I have, you know, kind of make a point of different areas or specializations in different kinds of fabric because going all the way back to biomes, you know, this country has a climate that will grow cotton really well. So the best cotton comes from here and this country um, produces a lot of sheep, but they aren't industrialized really. So they're shipping all of their wool to this other country to actually produce it. So you have these specializations and this trade and this huge network that you can kind of play with um, even before you get to a full on industrialization situation. Yeah. I mean, and people were trading like not just goods, but also knowledge back and forth. The Silk right. Road, the reason that the Silk Road existed was partially because the Chinese were holding on so tightly to the knowledge of how silk was, was mm-hmm. uh, produced because they did not like, that was one of their major sources of income was that uh, the Western world was so thirsty for silk uh, and understandably so, uh, that like we have to keep this secret, or like because once it gets out, if we trade silkworm eggs to the Western world, then they'll start making their own, and it's going to be real cheaper for them than to to import it from from us producing <laughs> it, uh, or other pieces of technology like um, knitting was not as we know it was not actually invented or was not was not developed until the 1100s and it was as most things were uh or as many things were brought to europe by the crusaders coming back uh from the middle east before that like we were using a completely different form of textile production so like we're uh it's called null binding and i talked about it earlier but i don't think we have time for me to really get into it uh google it <laughs> dear listeners google it it's but it's cool, cool and, and yeah you look it into uses it. a single needle instead of two needles um but it's not like crochet that's all i'm gonna say about it but yeah you have so you have like knowledge <laughs> being traded around and and tools and technology and techniques being passed around just as much as uh textiles and, kept and ma- deeply materials. secret so to maintain to maintain that that level or kept of, deeply of secret economic yes control, yes which mm-hmm. it all yeah. does it all comes back to economics it all economics comes back to economics every time your economics so we haven't done a whole lot of world building in oh, our dang. own world this time. <laughs> 
I'm wondering if we want to, I don't know, if we have time for just like one trivia fun fact kind of thing. Um, because we're, we're coming up on our hour yeah, yeah. pretty shortly, I think. Um, I can tell you that I, my culture, the uh, Al-And uh, peoples are probably making a lot of their textiles from animal fibers. Because I remember that they're mostly nomads. So they're going to be using like the fibers from their, their desert goats or whatever to, to make their things and um they will probably be using felting techniques to make their their living quarters like uh huts or yurts or such like i was going to say i think that your culture lends itself to um textile based yep, shelter absolutely the best absolutely uh, so i think for my i think i'm gonna go with my own little bit of of uh trivia there in that agave is going to be one of their main fiber plant because that that fits in with with this, so that I think cool. that's going to be something you're going to use a lot. Although like this is a dot point you put in, Alex, but but the sea silk thing. Oh yeah, because that's like this almost dying uh, art oh, in can... like one little village in Italy or something. Yeah, there's like two people left in the world who know how to do this. Sea silk is this fiber that comes from clams that grow in like one place in one specific uh, part of the Mediterranean, and it is finer than silk and softer and like a pair of gloves can fit inside a a walnut shell is what i read um it's also very cool and you should look but it up, so listeners. i think because they are like an ocean side culture <laughs> that that's that is going to be like their sort of their secret art that they've got but don't share with anybody because that's their main that's one of their big exports so that's going to be their secret thing mm. they're like their luxury item that everyone's like, how do they do it? Because they never see the oyster part of it. So So I have the kind of tropical-ish island um, archipelago. And um, historically, those have been very good for growing cotton. So I think that really, really, really fine cotton is something that is grown as an export. Um, You see we have cotton kind of plantations as one of the the things that's grown um, in their kind of because um, they had kind of a plantation culture. Um, but without the slavery, hopefully. Yes, no slavery, though. I, I don't know that all the labor practices are sure entirely kind, um, because you do have these kind of right, oligarchical right, right. Yeah, we can interrogate everything. that. So they aren't necessarily nice. So I think that they, they're growing a lot of cotton, that really fine, like, cottons. And I'm imagining even just, like, yeah, not even a whole lot of printed cottons, but just, like, like this is the status symbol, is, like, the finest mm. cotton that you can come up with. And so... You have sheer layers, you know, in order to achieve any kind of modesty, or maybe you don't. Um, but it's it's the sheerness and the fineness of the cotton that's like, cool. oh, that's a nice fabric. Very cool. Well, I think that we have come to the end of our hour. Uh, this was wonderful. Marshall Ryan Raskett, did you feel like you got enough time to talk? <laughs> I, I feel bad. We took over, No, Marshall. no, no. Because A, this is areas of expertise for the two of you. So again, I was here to learn. And I thought I, I had... Many cromulent and interesting things you to did. say about, yes. you especially about you did. clothing you did. in terms of, of social status and also in terms of industrialization. Because <laughs> um, these are things I do think about. Like, I don't know a lot about yeah. the actual, like, fibers and things, but I do think a lot in terms of clothing as it relates to culture and yeah. how yeah. it can be used to express that. I think that you made our bullshit much more relatable. And applicable. Oh, for and sure. And usable. So. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, because... Can I ask you, like, 
do you feel like you had like a particular favorite thing that you learned on this episode? <laughs> a particularly favorite thing. Now you're gonna put me oh, on man. the spot. Oh you don't man. if you don't have one, if you can you can just say, Oh, I don't wanna choose favorites for I don't want to choose that would be fine. Why would I do such a thing? Because you're both so amazing. <laughs> listening to this episode of world building for masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life our next episode goes up on november 27th we will be joined by another fabulous guest star cass morris to talk about world building pop culture in your fantasy book who is your shakespeare what are the songs everyone is whistling this year what are the local memes all this and more we really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review somewhere. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there are a number of ways to contact us. We are on Twitter and Tumblr as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. Here's your cool fact of the day. An adult woman who won't get married is called a spinster, right? The word spinster just means female spinner, in the same way that waitress means female waiter, or aviatrix means female aviator. Spinsters were independent women who owned their own tools and businesses and made their own money, and oftentimes supported themselves and their families without needing to get married to survive. Bad ass. <laughs>